Catherine Amir Farr. And I'm Cal Raustiala. And this is International, International Law, Law Behind, Behind the Headlines. Headlines. Coming to you from the American Society of International Law. Welcome to another episode of International Law Behind the Headlines. I'm Cal Raustiala, and it's my pleasure to invite on the podcast today um, two people who uh, both were editing a recent symposium, very recent, the most recent symposium uh, in the American Journal of International Law Unbound, usually known as Angel Unbound. So I'm really pleased to have with us Katerina Linos uh, and Elena Chachko. Uh, the, they both served as, uh, as co-editors of the symposium on uh, Ukraine and international law, a topic that really couldn't be more timely or significant. Uh, and the symposium covers a wide range of topics related uh, to Ukraine and international law. So we'll get into that in a moment. Um, but first, welcome, Katerina, and welcome, Elena. Thank you, Cal. It's great to be here, and uh, I look forward to talking about the ideas in the symposium, which I think is very timely and raises very important questions about the war. Yeah, terrific. I, I agree 100%, and I recommend it to uh, all of our listeners and to Agile readers. And uh, if you're not familiar with Agile Unbound, it is the online portion of Agile, which has been going for several years now and has a enormous array of really excellent, but also relatively brief content. So uh, so all of these pieces, I believe 3,000 words is the limit on Agile Unbound. So they're all quite uh, quite concise, uh, but uh, but very well done. So, um, so maybe I'm going to direct these questions to either of you, unless there's some specific issue. But um, I guess the first question is just, you know, what what is in this symposium and what's not in the symposium? And how did you go about putting it together? What do you wish you could have had in it? Uh, are there really interesting issues that maybe would make sense for a second symposium? Just give us a sense of the process of putting this together. Sure. Um, Katerina, do you want to go ahead or should I jump in? <laughs> sure, I'll start. Um, so it's um, thank you so much, Kyle, for having us here. Let me emphasize that the full text of the symposium, a series of short essays, is available online on the cambridge.org website and that people interested in writing about the Ukraine can submit to the AGEL um, issue that will be specially on this topic. We wanted to pull something together very quickly. Uh, so to do that, we focused on key experts on topics including sanctions, the law of war, online propaganda and disinformation, refugees, and um, cyber attacks. We left out key topics. There isn't something on energy. There isn't something on corporations. There isn't a lot by European or Ukrainian authors. So there's plenty of space, but our core goal was to get some big issues on the page very quickly in an effective 3000 word format. Great. And just to clarify what Katerina, you just said there's a call for papers for an agora in the print version, right? Which would appear, uh, I guess, in the October issue, I believe, of Agile. Um, so this is like an early uh, intercession by the Agile community, but there'll be more to come. Um, so so let's uh, let's kind of dig into what what you do in the symposium. Um, and I think maybe the most striking thing that I want to kind of uh, press you both or hear more about is in your um, 
I'm now forgetting if it's kind of an introduction. I guess it is an introduction to the symposium. In your joint introduction uh, that the two of you wrote, one of the things that's so interesting about it is that you point out, and I, having read all the pieces, I think rightly so, that although many people have seen the current situation as a sign that international law is failing, and we can go through the many different ways that you might make that argument, in fact, there's a pretty strong case to be made that international law is succeeding and is uh, stronger in some ways than we might have thought six months ago, uh, and is also showing resilience in areas that we might not have anticipated. So I think that's really, really interesting thesis. Uh, and I guess there's a lot of angles to that, but I would just love to hear from, from really both of you uh, you know, what you think about that. Obviously, that's the case you make. Um, but how strongly do you make that case? Uh, what are the counterexamples? Just elaborate on that a little bit more. Yeah, sure. So I'm happy to take this. Uh, I think for us, um, the main point we were trying to make is that after years of many key actors turning inwards, uh, it's certainly true for the United States that sort of disengaged from uh, international organizations and international cooperation during the Trump years. Uh, it's true for the European Union that faced enormous challenges, including Brexit uh, during those years. Uh, there was this feeling that international law has lost its power, has lost its vigor uh, in shaping international developments. Uh, and here we have this enormous challenge to the international order with Russia invading a country, uh, blatantly violating uh, key international norms. Uh, and the expectation initially uh, um, uh, espoused by many international actors was that international law had nothing to say uh, about it and that international par partnership will not play a role uh, in shaping that trajectory of events. And what we saw uh, as the conflict developed was that this was not true. Uh, we saw pretty impressive um, uh, responses from international coalitions, starting with NATO, uh, through the European Union, that took really impressive steps, both uh, in terms of refugee assistance uh, and um, significant steps uh, that were taken to support um, uh, the Ukrainian war effort for the first time in e EU history. Um, we saw a very impressive sanctions campaign levied against the Russians. So many, many different fronts in which international law and international partnerships uh, proved uh, vigorous, proved uh, impressive even uh, in actually creating meaningful responses to uh, the Russian invasion. Uh, the problem remains that, you know, the conflict is ongoing, uh, the harm brought upon Ukraine is significant and is continuing. Uh, the human suffering is great and international law has not been able uh, to date um, uh, to mitigate those effects. So we do have an impressive response, but in terms of what's happening on the ground, we're still seeing a conflict raging and human suffering and all those things where international law and partnerships have fallen short to date. Uh, nevertheless, it's really impressive that we did see this mobilization and this activation of international partnerships to actually do something uh, uh, in this case. Great, great. Katerina, do you want to add anything to that? I thought that was a very good summation of, of the case. Sure. Um, let me elaborate. We were thinking of titling this piece, The Good News About Ukraine, until we were told that is terribly insensitive, which it is. Um, but 
there is good news for international law in particular. In the headlines, we see NATO expanding and uh, taking on two new members. In the U.S. case, we see bipartisan agreement uh, for a $40 billion aid package with overwhelming support. In the EU, we see Poland, uh, which had rejected the institution, which had turned away Syrian refugees, which was allying closely with Hungary's Viktor Orban, just doing a 180 and supporting the institution, taking in so many refugees. We see the Europeans within days of the invasion suspending all kinds of plans they had put in place. So they had said, when it comes to refugees, they need to settle in the first safe country they arrive. Now they say, within three days, we'll take in an unlimited number of Ukrainians and they can go live wherever they want in Europe. There is new efforts to have defense policy, something that was left in the member states, done at an EU level. And uh, the sanctions put in place build on past efforts in Iran, but are so comprehensive and so sizable that, again, I think there is renewed understanding that international cooperation can be effective and rapid when we doubted this in the past. Yeah, no, I think that's a very compelling case. Uh, you know, the the kind of obvious counterpoint uh, is, and I want to talk more about Russia and whether we're constructing an international law that leaves certain states out or that certain states seem to be exiting. I don't want to put the onus on either side uh, as a first cut, but it does seem like uh, the key issue of territorial aggression, uh, enormous levels of uh, violations of the laws of war in many different ways. This is, of course, all covered in the in the symposium that you put together. Uh, there's at least two pieces that really address directly these issues. Uh, about uh, the the use of force and the violations of Article Two Four of the Charter, as well as the way uh, the way the war war is being fought, um, you know, I think it strikes a lot of observers as problematic and in the very at, at a minimum. Um, and in the very beginning of the war, there was this sense of uh, isn't the UN useless? There were a number of uh, people uh, writing pieces or certainly on Twitter extensively bemoaning what good is the United Nations if basically this can happen and and Russia can veto and really there's there's virtually no response. Now, as you show, there is a response. Um, but uh, how do you defend your proposition against the fact that it does seem like an aggressive territorial war, the very kind of core of the UN Charter's uh, mission, at least as of 1945, when it was drafted, um, is occurring right now. How do you how do you sort of see that fitting into your claim? Yeah, so I'm happy. Well, I wouldn't say I'm happy to take that, but I would take that. Um, the question is, you know, international law has been violated consistently uh, for a very long time. The Russian invasion is not news in that respect. And we've seen violations large and small from both Western countries and um, countries in the global South. There's no news in that. Uh, the question is what happens to reaffirm the norms, uh, the basic norms of the international system once a violation occurs. Uh, and in that respect, I think uh, that what we saw after the Russian invasion was encouraging. 
because the major players uh, on the international stage reaffirmed the norm that there shouldn't be a blatant violations of sovereignty uh, through a military invasion with the intent to seize the existence of uh, Ukraine as a sovereign entity, right? Uh, and we saw that message, that norm, that fundamental uh, tenant of international law reaffirmed through the behavior uh, of uh, international actors. Uh, and I think that's important. Uh, and we'll continue to see violations of basic international norms, but that does not uh, make those norms any less significant, in my view and uh, in the views of many other scholars that have responded to uh, this conflict. Yeah, let's talk about that issue of norm violation a little bit, because obviously this transcends, this question transcends this particular case. And there's been, you know, long discussion amongst uh, international lawyers and, and scholars about how to treat norm violations and the reactions uh, that they, they sometimes engender. So um, is there a point, so you're taking the stance, let me back up, you're taking the stance that uh, the strong reaction against this quite blatant violation of a norm is in fact evidence of the strength of the norm. Uh, and I think that's a reasonable position. And again, a position that, that existed before this conflict uh, in other domains. Um, but where do you draw the line or how do you see the balance between those two issues? So in other words, if another war was to break out, let's say later this summer, uh, something I hope won't occur, uh, China were to invade Taiwan, uh, or imagine another instance. Uh, at what point do the violations build up sufficiently that this argument starts to fail? And in fact, the, the norm is actually not uh, really viable anymore. How do you see that problem? Um, Katarina, do you want to jump in or should I? <laughs> sure. So I think there are two sets of norms here um, that have been violated, but to different extent. I think um, there are grave violations of Article 2, territorial uh, aggressive war that has been violated in a shocking way. And I think there are violations of the law of war, uh, targeting decisions, uh, killings of civilians, killings of prisoners of war um, that are not as shocking simply because we saw similar and worse atrocities in Syria and in other conflicts. So I think uh, we are seeing some effort by the Russians, and perhaps I'm a minority in uh, this respect, uh, to keep to some extent to uh, use in bellow prohibitions, even as they characterize uh, what is blatantly an aggressive war in other uh, terms. I think when it comes to war and when it comes to norm violations in general, it is good to see that we don't have a ratcheting up immediately after the first conflict. So the fact that it has been three months now and there hasn't been another action by the Chinese, by the Russians, by another party is impressive, as is the fact that after three months, we have a war that is continuing when many experts believed that this war would have ended within a couple of weeks. Um, so we do see norm change over time. Here in California, we see different norms towards 
same-sex couples, towards homeless people. And we, we it's clear to see that when nobody protests, when nobody articulates the norm uh, and perhaps welcomes a new norm, the norm has changed. So to the extent the Chinese in this sensitive position are nonetheless uh, reiterating the norm of territorial sovereignty, uh, to the extent the Chinese are not blatantly ignoring Western sanctions, to the extent uh, the Chinese have not yet used this instability and this focus of the West on Russia to start a war on a separate front, I think all of this is good news uh, for the strength of the norm that has been breached. Yeah, I think, I mean, I have to say, I generally found your piece persuasive. And so I'm really only kind of poking at these issues because they're both theoretically interesting and, and obviously as a practical matter, pretty important. Um, but I think I think you're both right that uh, that it is a stronger case than maybe meets the eye initially. Um, and I want to actually make sure before we get to the end of this conversation, I want to talk about the reform issues that you raised. But, you know, one of the things that's striking is how Russia is such a uh, in many ways, lawless actor. And so not only in terms of aggression, but as you just mentioned, Katerina, in terms of the actual conduct of the war, and this is discussed in the symposium as well, um, you know, in, incredible brutality uh, and, and pretty clear violations, maybe even blatant violations uh, of the laws of war. And so, you know, on the one hand, there's this uh, strong drawing together, particularly of the West, NATO, EU, uh, adjacent countries, et cetera, uh, strengthening, reinforcing these, these rules and norms. On the other hand, Russia seems sort of unfazed. Uh, I mean, they are phased, obviously, but they are, they're unfazed by the fact that they're breaking these rules. And, and in some ways, we saw this for a long time, whether you go back to Chechnya or, uh, you know, you mentioned Syria, et cetera, Russia seems willing to flout a lot of, uh, a lot of certainly with warfare, a lot of the laws of war. So are we in a situation where international laws, universalist aspirations are maybe under more stress and that part of the story isn't so good? Uh, and we see, we may expect to see more states uh, not exiting the international legal system because that's not really possible, but at least uh, stepping out of parts of it and, and posing an opposition as Russia appears to be right now. Or, uh, or do you see that differently in some way? And again, that's to either of you. Yeah, I think no one is under an illusion that international law is this universalist body of law that applies equally to everyone and is interpreted uh, equally by everyone. Uh, I think scholars have demonstrated that amply and uh, that is not an argument uh, that I at least would uh, make. Um, Countries, and Tom Ginsburg uh, makes this point very well in his uh, work on authoritarian international law and his essay in this symposium along those lines, uh, that actors like Russia actually do relate to international law. So I wouldn't say, Cal, uh, that uh, their behavior is lawless in the sense that they do reference international law or at least did reference international law and their justification for the invasion of Ukraine. Uh, but what they uh, present as international law and their understanding of international law, uh, a Western actor uh, would see as completely instrumental and cynical 
uh, application of international law to justify um, a policy that is in tension with the basic tenets of the law of war, uh, like President Putin did this time when he said that the Russian invasion was motivated by uh, the desire to protect the citizens of the Donbass from uh, uh, genocide. Uh, which we know is unsupported by evidence and uh, is inconsistent with uh, at least Western interpretations of what international law would allow in those circumstances. Uh, so I find it interesting that the language of international law uh, is applied even by those dictators and uh, actors that uh, violate international law. Uh, but the thing to study and to understand and to focus on is how they utilize international law in support of policies and actions uh, that are in clear violation of it. And I think that is the challenge for us uh, uh, and a very interesting uh, line of investigation going forward. Agreed, agreed. Katerina, anything to add to that? Sure. I think it depends on where you set the bar. So if you think the UN was set up in order to prevent World War III for 50 years, and it's done that job for longer, and World War III does not seem imminent, then we can say the UN is a huge success. If we are looking at what will happen to human rights as China gains more and more economic might and builds a separate set of alliances, if we look at whether sovereignty is used in hypercritical ways, if we look at whether this conflict is one that will coalesce all of Western might, but a similar conflict a little further south would not, uh, then the picture is far more negative. But if the goals were the of the UN were peace, or at least the prevention of the escalation of a single conflict into a global conflict, on that very low baseline, there is success. I have to say, I completely agree with that. And I actually think with regard to the UN itself, you know, unfortunately, it was designed from the start to have a veto that was absolutely central from Yalta onward. Uh, and the veto was meant, uh, I mean, no one knew exactly how it would be wielded. And certainly the Soviet Union from the start wielded it much more than any of the parties expected. Uh, but it was there to protect core interests and to prevent, as you said, World War III. And so in that sense, I think the UN, the UN structure is working as intended, even if uh, this is a violation of what maybe we should say the Security Council structure is working as intended, even if this is a pretty clear violation of 2-4. Um, so let's turn to the reform issues you raised. One of the interesting parts of your introduction, and this runs through all of the essays, of course, uh, are issues about not only the fact that the system seems to be working better than we might have thought, um, but also that it exposes some areas where maybe we don't have sufficient clarity or we can develop, you know, one very clear one is uh, with regard to migration and refugees, something we haven't talked about yet in this discussion, uh, but one of the essays uh, covers that. And, you know, the fact that uh, the Ukrainians who are fleeing don't really fit the definition of refugees. Uh, maybe we could squeeze them in, in a sense, but that's not really the way uh, the law sees it. Or, you know, Elena, in your co-authored uh, essay, uh, uh, in terms of economic warfare and the rules constraining, this is a very, very impressive, unprecedented use of sanctions. Uh, but 
we don't have clear guidelines on exactly how that works or what the constraint should be. Um, so I just want to give you both a chance to talk about some of the reform uh, dimensions that you see. What's the reform agenda for international law going forward? So again, either of you can, can kick it off. So I'll start with uh, refugees and migration, and maybe Elena can continue with sanctions. So um, Jaya Ramji Nogales has a fantastic piece in uh, the symposium, but uh, the change in migration and refugee law is a sea change. Cal, as you said, normally refugees need to prove individually that they are persecuted after some complicated procedure. And now the Europeans have said that anyone with a Ukrainian passport uh, qualifies for temporary protection and all kinds of benefits, uh, welfare benefits, education benefits, um, and a lot more. So that's kind of this huge uh, procedural and definitional shift is a really big one. Elena and I pulled together a year ago a symposium. It's coming out in June in time for World Refugee Day called Responsibility Sharing for Refugees, where we put all of the historical efforts on a scale. We said when the Americans helped with the resettlement of Indo-Chinese, when the Europeans helped with the Syrians, uh, how progressive or regressive are these efforts in terms of the amount of money, in terms of the uh, number of people resettled, in terms of uh, the multilateralism, in terms of the legal bindingness. And the Ukrainian effort is simply off the scale. There's never been anything as generous in part because everyone is automatically given protection who has Ukrainian nationality, that's an important limitation, and because we're doing away with this whole idea of refugee camps. So a lot of the problems associated with refugee law are stem from the fact that refugees are in enclosed spaces for decades and the new policy is set up to put people close to workplaces, close to schools, and that's just transformational. It has already led to improvements for other groups like Afghans and Cameroonians that were forgotten and somehow got U.S. temporary protection shortly after the Ukrainians did. Um, so that's a, a sea change in the area of migration and refugee law. Yeah, uh, and I think one of the most interesting things about this conflict is that uh, it uh, was the first time that we saw um, new kinds of warfare and new kinds of actors uh, actually participate uh, in uh, uh, what was going on. And I'm talking about the role of cyber operations and the role of uh, private platforms uh, where it comes to disinformation and uh, uh, the flow of information about this conflict on uh, uh, international networks. Uh, and because it is so new and because um, we have talked so little about um, what international law has to say about both of these arenas, uh, I think what we learn from this conflict uh, creates a very interesting uh, basis for uh, talking about reforms going forward. Um, and I'll talk about sanctions. Uh, again, as you mentioned, this is in my essay with uh, Ben Heath. Uh, so sanctions have been an increasingly important tool of statecraft, uh, increasingly applied by major actors like the United States and the European Union for the past um, uh, two decades and more. 
Uh, but this time, the scope of the effort, the fact that it was so unprecedented, so fast, uh, so comprehensive, uh, raised um, new questions and brought attention to the regulation of sanctions and when and how uh, they should be applied. And those issues were sort of percolating under the surface for a long time. Uh, but uh, the sanctions effort on display during the Ukraine conflict generated lots of interest and lots of attention and lots of questions about the effectiveness and the legality of sanctions. Uh, and so there's one group that says uh, this is uh, a completely unregulated uh, tool that states wield at their own discretion for their own political uh, interests uh, and the damage to individual rights to um, third countries, uh, to the international economic system is great. We have to do something. We have to rethink uh, the legal frameworks that govern uh, this uh, tool. But there's also the camp that says, listen, uh, sanctions uh, have proved themselves as a great tool for uh, uh, releasing pressure on the top actors, the United States, the European Union, and others uh, to use military force in response to the Russian invasion, and therefore they operate as intended. Uh, we want states to resort to economic pressure instead of um, being compelled to take military action uh, in circumstances like this. Uh, and so we want states to be able to use um, uh, sanctions relatively free freely. Um, and this is the debate that's sort of ongoing right now, and it would be... Um, uh, interesting to see whether this moment produces a genuine effort at reforming the international sanctions uh, regime uh, or maintaining the status quo. And I personally think that the status quo uh, is very powerful because uh, those who wield the power in their international system uh, want to maintain relative freedom of action in their resort to financial pressure and international relations. Uh, but we'll see where it goes. Well, that's terrific. And I really want to applaud both of you for putting together a very interesting, very enlightening symposium uh, in Agile Unbound. And, and just to clarify for listeners, uh, there this was mentioned at the very beginning, but there will be an agora in the print edition of Agile. Uh, there's a current call for papers, which you can find on the Agile website. And uh, the, the ask is for submissions by June 20th, so there's still time to submit if people are interested. And that will uh, extend uh, and elaborate, I think, on many of the themes that are raised in this uh, initial foray uh, in Agile Unbound. So uh, Katerina, Elena, thank you both so much for coming on the podcast, and, and we hope to have you back soon. Thank you so much, Cal. Thank you. Take care. Bye.